30 years ago, a special issue of Time magazine appeared on newsstands. On the cover was a light, brown-skinned woman who had no identity and no name. That's because she wasn't real. As the editors at Time explained in 1993, writing in boldface type on the cover, take a good look at this woman. She was created on a computer with a mix of several races. What you see is a remarkable preview of the new face of America. The Time story was just one of many from around that period that contributed to the idea that America would someday become a post-racial country. It was a hopeful, if naive, view of the impact of an increasingly multiracial population. The article explored how in a generation or two, mixed-race kids were supposed to dismantle hundreds of years of systemic racism and binary categorizations of race. No pressure or anything. Of course, that hasn't happened. But as for what has, in this 10-episode series, we're going to explore the topic of multiracial experience and identity, primarily in the United States. I'm Darylise Lyons. And I'm Malcolm Burnley. Darylise and I both happen to be Black and white biracial. But this exploration of the complicated and nuanced experiences of people of multiracial backgrounds goes far beyond that of Black and white biracial people. Absolutely. The On Being Biracial podcast features people of a variety of identities and a variety of stories, stories which are relevant to the conversation of race, which still seems to be overwhelmingly presented in binary ways. And even though the United States still remains divided along racial lines, and even though multiracial people have diverse experiences and are far from the amalgamated fictional person depicted on the cover of Time, the article did get one thing right. The rise in the multiracial population, it's accelerated and actually far outpaced the writer's 1993 projections. Today, the multiracial population is growing three times faster than the rest of the country, and we're expected to grow by another 200% between now and the year 2060. Roughly 3% of Americans identify as mixed race, but roughly double that number of people, closer to 7%, could be considered multiracial based on the racial demographics of their parents and or grandparents, according to the Pew Research Center, a nonpartisan think tank that informs the public about issues, attitudes, and trends. Being multiracial is hardly a recent phenomenon and has a complicated history. In North America, many of the first mixed-race children were the products of sexual violence on Black and Indigenous women. These children were not, it should be noted, multicultural. They were often raised by their parent of color, and the circumstances of their births were shrouded in shame and secrecy. Later, as time went on, there was a rise in consensual but clandestine relationships, which also led to the birth of multiracial babies, still often in circumstances that were shrouded in secrecy. As a result, intrigue and speculation have always followed the multiracial experience. Representations of what it means to be racially mixed have largely been defined by those outside of the experience, until recently. This dates back to literary traditions like the tragic mulatto stereotype, popularized by white authors in the 19th century. Whether biracial characters were depicted as acting for good or for evil, they were representations of disunity and isolation, caricatures more than fully realized people. Those seeking to redefine the mixed experience have historically had to sort through a lot of misunderstanding and projecting based on other people's dreams, wishes, and fears. That time cover story was no exception. Only one multiracial person was quoted, and that wasn't until the final two paragraphs of the piece. 
Plus, Malcolm, thinking about the cover art used, rather than photographing a real multiracial person, the magazine editors chose to have an artist create a generic depiction of a fictional multiracial woman. Right. In a sense, the realities of multiracial experiences were passed over, yet again, in favor of a projection. Luckily, what it means to be multiracial or biracial or mixed race, both for the person themselves and for everyone around them, has been a conversation that's been gaining more traction in recent years. Darylise and I spoke with 30 people for this podcast series, all of whom, except one, come from multiracial, multicultural backgrounds. And it felt important to feature their voices and our voices, not only as a way of taking back agency, but because it's important to accurately represent biracial and multiracial experiences which can't happen if we're trusting other people to tell our stories. That's one reason I was so excited to speak with Lisa Funderberg, a journalist and author who wrote the book Black, White, Other. And I ended up turning it into a book of oral histories, and that's what Black, White, Other is, biracial Americans talking about themselves. I'd also noticed that this was one of the first times where a collection of adults were asked to speak about their own experience, where we weren't being represented by psychologists or sociologists being treated as pathological or a demographic subject of interest, but we were talking about ourselves. This was back in the early 1990s, so in some ways a very different world and in some ways exactly the same world we're in now. And why I was so excited to speak with the National Book Award-winning fiction writer, Matt Johnson. It took me writing about the mixed experience directly in a book I did called Loving Day that showed me the last question that I was asking about mixed experience. And that last question was, is it possible to have a mixed identity and be African-American of a mixed identity and identify as being mixed or biracial or however you want to phrase it and not have that tainted by anti-Blackness? Because when I was growing up, if you said you were mixed, it was a way of distancing yourself from Blackness and a way of passively endorsing white supremacy. Also, it was thrilling to recall the memories of two-term former President Barack Obama. Okay, we didn't get Obama, but he is part and parcel of this modern cultural moment where we're collectively looking at mixed experiences in new ways, centering first-person perspectives that explore the nuances, complexities, and ambiguities of what it means to be biracial. That's very much what we hope to do with this podcast. As Darylise mentioned, we'll be exploring how people who come from two or more racial backgrounds feel about being in a world that often conceives of race in binary terms. Right. Malcolm and I asked people how they see and experience race, and we questioned our own conceptions of race as well. Here's some of what you're going to hear over the next nine episodes. We have a very particular experience, and it's still true to this day that lots of people don't understand it. I think to a certain extent, we are all well advised to make considered choices about exposing that because race is such a lightning rod. Being Black, to me, it is a political identity, but it's more than that because you say that and then you get Rachel Dole's all that's like, I'm Black too. It's like, all right, now. It was like I came into the world with half of my identity was amputated. But when you're on the edge, on the margins, the idea of who you are is constantly in flux. And it wasn't until I came to Latin America in the past two and a half years where I come out here and I'm, I'm in Mexico City and I hop in the cab and I say, are you mixed too? And he's like, yeah, 
we're all mixed here. It's so common. And so nobody asks me rarely, what are you? It's just, I'm brown, they're brown, we're all brown, we're being brown together. (laughs) And it's extremely comforting and liberating. People have to be open to allowing individuals to say who they are and to stop telling them who they are. (laughs) And I think that that actually speaks to what has created race in the first place. (laughs) As we said earlier, throughout this 10-episode season, we'll be almost exclusively featuring the voices of people whose parents and or grandparents are of more than one race, sharing their stories of how they understand themselves, how they're perceived by others, and how race has shaped their interactions and experiences. You'll probably have noted that Lee said, those who have parents or grandparents of more than one race. We also might say things like those who come from multiracial ancestral backgrounds or those who grew up multicultural. We're being careful about the language we use to identify folks because this podcast incorporates the voices and viewpoints of people who identify in a variety of ways. Including people who don't identify as either biracial or mixed. We also interviewed adoptees who, while they do identify as multiracial or biracial, shared about their unique experiences being raised by people whose racial and ethnic identities are different than theirs. For those interviewees, their racial identities differ from their cultural backgrounds. So many factors contributed to how those we spoke with conceived of their identities and their stories. We hope that amplifying a variety of voices showcases the diversity that so often has been scrubbed from discussions about navigating non-binary racial experiences in a world that is so often understood, quite literally, as Black and white. But this podcast isn't just about Black and white biracial people. You'll hear from those of Indigenous, Asian, Latinx, and Hispanic heritage as well. We wanted to really bring these important conversations to the forefront, hopefully without over-representing a particular experience. And I have to say, this is a conversation I've been wanting to have for my entire life. Me too. In fact, I love having this conversation so much that I've pretty much made a career out of it. But here's the thing. It's not just mixed people shouting from a rooftop, or in our case, speaking into a computer microphone about the importance of more nuanced conversations about race. More and more monoracial people are seeking to engage or being forced to engage with the mixed experience as well. Sometimes that's through politics. Other times it's through pop culture, like sports and television. And in the most intimate relationships in our lives, with our family members. That was the case for W. Kamau Bell, the comedian and documentarian known for works like We Need to Talk About Cosby and United Shades of America. His latest project, 1000% Me, is available on HBO. Long before it was a project, it was me and my wife, Melissa, who's white, I'm black, for people who aren't watching us, (laughs) talking about, oh, you're pregnant and we're going to have, or even before she's pregnant, like, what is it going to be like to have kids who are mixed, who are part you and part me? We were already having those conversations. And what is it going to be like to have a kid in the world who has an identity that neither one of us really shares with them? Kamau is what you could call a cultural theorist around race. He's interviewed everyone from KKK members to rural Black Americans in Appalachia about how race functions in America and how it shapes and scars us. I do think that there's something about multiracial kids where it's like a lot of them have the conflict of America in their DNA. 
And that conversation is more open. They're more in that conversation when they don't even want to be just by nature of the existence. So I think that does lend you to have those conversations. I don't think it's an accident. Some of the angriest, most militant black people ever in the history of this country were light-skinned black folks. Yes. <laughs> like <laughs> Malcolm X, Ice-T, you know, yeah. like, uh, the list goes on and on. Oh, Bob Marley was mixed. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, I think there's like, a, there's something about the fact that people who have it in their DNA are, and not that we would describe Malcolm X as mixed. I think his mom was, but, but again, something about like when you have the America's conflict in your body, you sometimes ha have a better way analysis on it than other people do. Kamau and his production team focused the 1000% Me documentary on the voices of youth, specifically youth in the Bay Area of California and did a phenomenal job of showing the ramifications of white supremacy and how deeply it can be intertwined with the mixed experience while managing not to vilify whiteness. That can be a difficult line to find and one we likewise hope to navigate in our work. Yeah, so it's interesting, Malcolm, that you and I are both black and white and something that came up a lot as our team was discussing and preparing this season's episodes was how do we honor the full scope and spectrum of our identities while at the same time grappling with painful legacies and showcasing stories in which people have been profoundly harmed by white supremacy culture. Our podcast goes beyond the black-white conversation. So we wanted to explore the nuanced nature of race beyond binaries and examine the diversity of multiracial identity while also not losing sight of the ways in which conceptions of race and experiences of race have been constructed, particularly in the United States. I found Kamau's framing of racial identity to his daughters to be something that transcends black and white, while also honoring the constructions of race that operate within our country and other countries that have a legacy of race-based enslavement. Did you and Melissa make a conscious choice to raise your kids in claiming that identity? How did that come about? The thing I did was I told them at some point, and I actually haven't done this with my four-year-old yet because she I just think she's not there. She's not there yet. She's gone through She was raised during a pandemic. She's gone through a lot. We've talked a lot about her race, but like I had a conversation with both of them at some point. I was like, look, here's how this works. They said it's the same as you know. You can say I'm half black, half white. You can say I'm black. You can say I'm mixed or whatever, you know, but the thing you can't say is I'm white. And for me, that was a way of going like, that's not how racial categorization works in this country. And you don't want to look like you don't know that. You don't want to be out there as a person, especially like, like Juno is a different fact. She could actually maybe get away with it, but like, you don't want to be out there. That's not how it works in this country. Again, I'm subscribing to the one drop rule. Like you can't say I'm white. And so that was the thing I said to them early on about like that basically to go this. I want you to understand here's how it works in this country. These are the things you can and can't say. I certainly didn't go. The thing that they did and the thing that a lot of those kids do, I never said to them, and I don't think Melissa ever said to them, you're both or you're equal on both sides. I didn't say that. They have interpreted, and I think a lot of this is about they're surrounded by a lot of mixed kids who knows what conversations they're having. Also, they're surrounded by a lot of just general like you can be who you want to be talk and inclusion. And, you know, we live in the Bay Area. They go to the crunchy granola school, you know, all those things. So I think they're taking what I say, what Melissa says. They're taking what they're seeing at school and the posters and and sort of turning it into their own thing. So I do feel like the way they would say answered about their racial categorization is not that's not the way I told it to them, but it's mm -hmm. the way they're living it. While some boundaries around race, like the line between white and non-white, remain fixed in this country, other ideas are being actively challenged, including the labels we use. And I'm aware, and I've said this my whole, since I've had these kids, is like, even the term mixed, which is how they're identifying themselves now, 
just like you said, biracial. When I was growing up, that was biracial. They don't say biracial, but I would imagine by the time they're adults, they will be saying something else. On Being Biracial is funded by the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, a partnership of 29 local newsrooms focusing on issues that affect the daily lives of Philadelphia residents. The PJC is dedicated to bridging the divide between communities and journalists and increasing community-centered, solutions-based journalism that promotes inclusivity and equity in news reporting. To learn more, visit resolvephilly.org PJC. Race is a social construct, a human-invented system of classifying groups of people, which can change based on geography and historical context. And we'll be revisiting just how constructed and how malleable conceptions of race are over and over again throughout this series. Since this podcast is called the On Being Biracial Podcast, it's probably helpful to explain what you and I mean when we use the terminology biracial. Yeah, absolutely. When we use the term biracial, Darylise and I are acknowledging that we carry within ourselves the ancestral heritage and history of people of more than one race, not necessarily in the same way or to the same degree. Having said that, we appreciate that many of those whose ancestral lineage is multiracial or multiethnic may not identify as biracial. In fact, identifying with one race remains the norm for the majority of people in this country who come from multiracial backgrounds. The Pew Research Center found that when asked to self-identify, 61% of people with ancestors of different races did not resonate with the multiracial label and instead identified with one race, typically their underrepresented race. This speaks to the complexity of the conversation, not only because race can feel messy and uncomfortable to talk about, but because we don't all share the same set of terms and definitions. And our terms and definitions can change over time. I think growing up, I did identify as mixed race. My mother's Puerto Rican, my father's Black. And so I identified as mixed race, but also didn't understand what race means in our society, what ethnicity means. And I think a lot of people don't. That's Rachel Lauren, a DEI consultant and civil rights advocate. What we know is that race is a social construct and it's based on appearance. It's it's how someone sees you when they first meet you. And that could be skin color. That could be, you know, features. There are things that make people make an assumption on what race is. And that's how you get profiled. When someone sees me, they tend to think this is a black woman. I present as black and I do see myself as a black woman. But that doesn't mean that I don't acknowledge the Puerto Rican ancestry that I have. Uh, that is what I consider my ethnicity. That's the culture that I celebrate, um, the traditions, the food, the stories that it all relates to Puerto Rico. My mother was born and raised there. So that's kind of how I see it. And I think that if you think about race as a social construct, people that are biracial, unfortunately, it takes them having to speak about what biracial means for them oftentimes. I mean, some people do look racially ambiguous, but oftentimes if you are biracial and you are Black in, in any capacity, you might present, right, as a Black person. So it actually would take you to speak about the other things. All of that's to say that despite the podcast's title, the people who spoke to us for this series described themselves in a variety of ways, including biracial, multiracial, multicultural, mixed, or as all of or one of their races. In some cases, they identify differently in different contexts, and in many cases, they've identified differently over time. 
That's a common experience shared by many of our interviewees. That's certainly been the case for John Blake, award-winning journalist and author of More Than I Imagined, what a black man discovered about the white mother he never knew. Tell people I'm racially fluid. Sometimes I say I'm black. Sometimes I say I'm biracial, but I identify primarily as black because I grew up in that culture. And for Chantel Fitzgerald, founder and CEO of Mindset Strategies. I guess I will say that, and maybe just reiterate that, I think identity is ever evolving, you know, as we evolve as humans. So many of those we spoke to this season talked about identifying differently over time and in different contexts. They also shared about how the language around their identities has shifted and evolved and continues to be malleable. As important as the language can feel, it's also insufficient to convey the complexities of people's stories and identities. That was the case for Nourla El-Marzuki and Zain Hassanein. Nourla primarily describes herself as Egyptian and American, and Zain as Swana American or Egyptian American or Muslim and Jewish, depending on the context. They're both the products of interracial relationships who have lived in Egypt and in the U.S. and opted to be interviewed together. We are both identities. We carry them both. And everywhere that we go, we're usually one or the other to everyone else, really, except for other people like us, which is why when Nura and I met, I think we connected so quickly was because we it's rare to meet another person who shares that mixed identity with you and understands the transnational like aspect of at least my experience. Speaking to this idea of being biracial, I've been thinking about that because I don't really think of myself as biracial so much as I think of myself as multi-ethnic or I'd be happy to say bicultural. I'll share that because of my ambiguity, it took a lot to explain who I was in order to be trusted because I did not grow up in the city. I'm not fully white. I'm not fully black. I'm not black. I have this mixed identity thing and I had to always explain who I am. Because of the dynamics of a city like Philadelphia, I can only speak for the dynamics of Philadelphia from my own experience. So I'm still dealing with that external perception of who I am from others outside of our like internal bubble. And again, as a light-skinned person, it's it, there's assumptions that come with that that aren't my lived experiences that are often placed on me without recognizing the complexities. Charlotte Gill, author of Almost Brown, a mixed-race family memoir, daughter of an Indian father and white mother, shared about the complexities of choosing an identity label as someone who is not one race or another, but both. And she shared that as a biracial person, she has experiences that span the racial divides she exists within. And she said this has created its own unique and distinct experiences, a unique and distinct sense of identity. I want to say that I am not an authority on this and probably everything that I have to say about it, everything that I've thought about it is terribly unscientific. This is just based on my own feelings. I feel like a biracial person. I feel as if I am white and I am also South Asian. That's how I feel. And I know there must be other people out there who feel similarly torn by having to make a choice. I wonder, wouldn't it be fair to allow a little room for people to have these mixed identities when we are so often pushed into racial pigeonholes. I know the pigeonholes exist for a reason, sometimes very good reasons, but 
everywhere now there is increased flexibility when it comes to self declarations of identity. And I feel as if a biracial mixed race category would be great. Welcome for me anyway. Evan Fong Jeroff, who is in the midst of developing and launching Chibanos, a Chinese-Cuban fusion sandwich shop and mixed-race space, shared about how he too, quote-unquote, feels biracial, and how he's found it helpful to conceive of his own racial identity, not in terms of being half-white, half-Asian, but a whole person who holds two races within himself. I think that you can be be both at once, and I feel like there are more and more people that are talking about that. So when I was living in London, there's a comedian called Phil Wang and he's Malaysian and British. I feel like he talks a lot about being both, like it's okay to be both. And I'm hundred percent of both. And I really like that concept rather than saying half and half. I used to call myself like a hybrid, but I do think that there is goodness in acknowledging both halves or multiple parts of your, your identity, even if maybe at, at times it it makes you the other or kind of outcasts you or puts you in a, in a bit of a different spot. I do think it can be a privilege, but also a challenge. In Evan's response, you can hear a tension that many multiracial individuals experience. Still, there's no singular experience of any identity, and perhaps holding two or more racial identities can create even greater breadth of experience. You'll hear a lot of perspectives this season. That said, as more and more people share their stories, you'll notice, or at least we noticed, a lot of commonalities. I think at times if you're mixed race, it's hard to find that community because you don't quite fit in one or the other. But again, something that I've I've really found value in is there's value in those who don't fit in. So even if you and I have a different background of races, ethnicities... I automatically feel a connection because you know a lot of the same things that I've gone through just from a different angle or a different perspective. And I think finding that commonality is powerful. And I think the statistics show it like this is only going to increase more and more. So they're only, I joke, they're only going to be more and more confused people like in the world trying to find their space. Earlier, Kamau Bell referred to multiracial people as holding America's conflict within our DNA. Of course, given the ancestral history of stolen land, stolen labor, internment, brutalized bodies, the quote-unquote ownership of others, and many other painful legacies of white supremacy, those of us who inhabit whiteness and another historically subjugated identity have a particular kind of conflict and a specific and particular experience. But we're not unique in that there are many racial mixtures that spoke about dealing with racism and colorism and difficulties within their families and prejudices that exist among and between communities of color. It feels important to amplify the overlapping experiences that multiracial people of a variety of different racial identities have had irrespective of which ethnicities they carry. So over the course of the next nine episodes, Darylise and I are going to be exploring other multiracial people's experiences of race. We'll be exploring key themes that relate to biracial experiences in every episode and the ways that those experiences bump up against and at times disrupt systems in our society. We'll talk about the role of privilege, colorism, and appearance in mixed lives. Colorism exists everywhere. I don't believe that there should be any sort of hierarchy when it comes to our skin tone, but this is the world that we're living in. For a lot of my life, I was brainwashed, especially when it comes to hair, that my hair had to be straight at all times. Your hair is not a thread. 
your hair is not bad. Your hair is not doing nothing to nobody or, or your skin or the way that you look or the, the clothes that you use, etc. So that's why it's, it's important to think about this and, and also to talk about being mixed race. We'll cover the role of the census, the one drop rule and identity. I think the first time the census actually counted mixed race identity was in 2000. And they used to just use the eyeball test. The census takers would make a determination based on what they saw, and that would be what counted. Or if someone wasn't home, they'd look at who the neighbors were and decide, because racial segregation was so strong and still is, they would decide who the inhabitant of the house was if they couldn't reach them, who they were racially. The other thing I would say is most multiracial studies in any field would argue that a multiracial person changes their identities a couple times across their lifespan. And we'll talk about so much more, including families, siblings, dating, art and culture, passing and parenting, as well as how we can move beyond pessimism and even emotional incapacitation and build meaningful relationships that span racial divides. Word Radio is Philadelphia's home for progressive Black Talk media. For 20 years, WURD has been the voice of the community, providing information, insights, and conversations on the issues that matter to Black people in Philadelphia and beyond. From politics to pop culture, wellness to wealth, Word Radio's dynamic hosts cover news through a progressive Black lens and perspective. Tune in for live programming every day at wordradio.com. Download the Word Radio app, or listen in Philadelphia on 900 AM or 96.1 FM. Follow Word Radio on social media to mark your calendar for an exciting variety of community events. And become a member of the Forward Movement to show your support for progressive Black talk media. As we shared earlier, race is a social construct. How one identifies or gets misidentified by others is based on a confluence of factors. Things like skin tone, geography, what they wear, and how they talk. Here's another clip from my interview with author Matt Johnson. When I was younger, one of the big moments where I was like, oh, wow, people could actually perceive me as being Black was when I learned, like, I got my first fade. And at that time, white people were not getting fades. I mean, certainly white people in history have had fades. I got my first fade and it was like, it was no white Americans who would do that at that time. And so it immediately was a big thing that told people, this is the group that I'm in. I never even thought that would happen. I never thought somebody would perceive me as actually being black. Darylise and I, along with our producer, Emily, felt like it was essential to share stories of those whose skin tones span the spectrum of shades and whose features and phenotypes differ from each other. Because racial identity isn't solely an issue of how we see ourselves, but also how others see us and interact with us. Here's John again. In the Black community, there's tremendous variety in how we look. Most Black people are racially mixed. There were other light-skinned people in my community, so in some ways I could pass. I, I was undercover. Again, this podcast goes beyond Black, White, Biracial and incorporates many different experiences. I asked Drew Amund, Project Director of VTech, the Virginia Tribal Education Consortium, and a citizen of the Upper Mattapanai Indian Tribe in King William, Virginia, how being Indigenous and white, but often being perceived by others as white, informs his ability to work within different communities. It's a really complicated question. I think it's easy for me to be white passing, 
which has had benefits. I think there's plenty of people in my family who throughout history would have preferred to be white passing as, you know, as established earlier. I know my, my dad is mistaken for all different kinds of races and, and nationalities. They never get to an indigenous person and it, it's always driven him crazy, I think. So I, I almost feel a little bit of guilt, even though it's easier for me in some circumstances, in some ways, if I'm in just general society. When I go to work with tribal people, with the communities that I work with, I almost, I don't know, I, I guess I want to make sure that people know I belong. And I guess that's what I'm talking about in general is that sense of belonging, but especially in these insular communities where they've been marginalized by outsiders. It's important to me for people to know that at least a part of me, if not you know, mentally all of me is here for them and has a history of being in their position. It's hard because you can't, I can't mentally be all one or the other. And, and again, that's, it's hard. That duality of balancing the desire to belong with the recognition of his skin privilege and his recognition of the importance of holding space for himself to be all of himself while navigating different social and life scenarios is something I can relate to. I spent much of my early life identifying as Black and getting a lot of pushback because others saw me as more racially ambiguous, as not white or white presenting, but as other. We've done our best to include a variety of narratives spanning the gamut in terms of other people's perceptions. Throughout this season, you'll hear from those who have been viewed by others as ethnically ambiguous, white presenting, as two or more races, or as their minority race only. Here's Barbara Idelis Abadia Rexosh, a professor of Latin studies and anthropology at San Francisco State University, who describes herself as Black Latina. Because I think that my my body as a Black woman, in Puerto Rican Black woman, my my experiences, my my skin has a lot to say, and I think this is also academic, not necessarily the traditional academic, but. Uh, for me, it's so important. I can disconnect myself from the work I'm doing. And I have to, to use my, my platforms, my, my privilege to talk about myself as a way to heal, but also as a way to give other people more information or understanding of what is to, to be a Black person from Puerto Rico, a colony of the U.S., and all of the isms that we deal with on a daily basis. Since race is an arbitrary construct, it's conceived of differently in different places. In Puerto Rico, 100% of the population, we are mixed. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. And we have to talk about this. Absolutely. We have to talk about race, about mixedness, about the ways in which racism shows up, the privileges some multiracial people experience, the pain we can undergo, and the variety of experiences that become obscured if we fail to move beyond binary-only conversations of not only race, but racism. Researcher Sarah Gaither, a professor of neuroscience and psychology at Duke University, shared about how complicated the mixed experience can become from a physiological standpoint. Although race is a societal construct, it inflicts serious consequences on our bodies and minds. And obviously, depending on what racial mixture you are, right, you have different phenotypicality or physical appearance options, right, that you may have. 
a lot of our work doesn't find that phenotypicality matters for how a biracial person necessarily identifies internally. They could, someone like myself, right, is a good example where I very much identify with the Black community, but you would never know that I'm Black by looking at me. Where it does tend to matter more so, right, is if you care more about how society is treating you or if you used experiences of discrimination or prejudice as a pathway to racial or ethnic identification, your physical appearance, right, is going to play a much larger role in that identity development in those cases. But there's not, again, a ton of work kind of looking at the role that phenotypicality plays, at least for multiracial identification. We've done a lot of work with what we call priming in psychology. So we'll get a biracial person to think of one of their racial identities over the other. We find it does shift temporarily how much you claim that one part of yourself, but it doesn't move how much you identify as being biracial, right? So that level of identification doesn't move at all, which suggests that it really is this kind of internal level of identification that you're choosing for you, regardless of what a person may look like. It does matter a lot more when you come into interracial interactions, right? So if someone perceives you as only being white or only being black, that outward perceiver is going to treat you very differently depending on how you look. So again, it's kind of this interaction between your internal identification and how these perceivers might be treating you on a daily basis. Research suggests that those interactions take a toll on many mixed people, which may explain why we're statistically more likely to deal with substance abuse and to struggle with mental health issues, including suicide. At the same time, there is nothing inherently painful or fraught about any identity and experiences of multiracial identity are not uniform and differ from person to person, place to place. Because different geographical locations have been shaped by different historical experiences that embed and inflict racism and colorism in various ways, it's important to look at how different biracial, multiracial identities relate to the complicated histories we carry. As Sarah continued, she spoke about the problems that arise if we take a cookie-cutter approach to looking at biracial identity and encourage those studying multiracial identities and experiences to move beyond the black-white lens. I think it's problematic in that it's creating this monolithic explanation of what biracial people are supposed to look like, how they're supposed to identify, what lineages matter and are seen right within the world. I think, you know, this is the problem with studying any racial or ethnic group, right? We, we study Asian people in psychology a lot, but most of our research is really only reflective of East Asian people. Most of the stimuli, the pictures that we use to understand how we see them are Chinese, Japanese, and Korean, which means if you're South Asian, Indian, Southeast Asian, I would argue we don't know very much at all about how your demographic within the Asian diaspora is actually seen or heard. So I think sometimes with our focus on this white-black binary, which is, of course, really important historically and creates unique struggles and challenges that these individuals are going to face that other backgrounds won't it's still overriding the other challenges and difficulties these other multiracial people may face as well, right? Meaning we know even less about their outcomes. That's not to say that examining Black-white biraciality isn't important. It is. In fact, it's central to understanding the history of race in this country. But it's also insufficient if we hope to deepen our understanding of multiracial experiences across racial identity lines and to become cognizant of the different experiences but also of the many similarities. Similarities that are born out through research. Through her own research at Duke University and by examining the work of others, Sarah has discovered the following about biracial identity and categorization. What most research would argue is that if you do claim all of your identities or both of your racial identities, the more integrated those identities are, the less mental health consequences you might face. 
usually it's because you're growing up in an environment where you're more free to identify however it is you want to. So I think identity autonomy is the real takeaway from most of our work is that I'm not here to tell anyone they should identify one way or the other. It's that forced identification that tends to make people feel badly about themselves. So if you are mixed, and to be fair, lots of people in the U.S. are mixed by lineage because of slavery and other things in our history. If you are mixed, but really only claim one of your identities doesn't mean you're going to have horrible mental health consequences, right? If you were in an environment where you really chose to identify just as Black or Asian or whatever, that should lead to just as positive outcomes for you too. But on average, this identity flexibility component does seem to be strongest for people who kind of claim their multiple selves. Claiming his multiplicity as a biracial person is something Jordan Davis found was necessary to open himself up to self-love, which as a biracial person who spent years operating within neo-Nazi and white supremacist circles was key for him finding self-love. My conversation with Jordan brought up quite a lot, both about systemic racism and the pervasiveness of binary thinking when it comes to race. You've forgiven yourself for some of the things that you said or some of the views that you held? Yes. You have to if you're going to really strive for peace with yourself and if you really are going to try to inspire others to break this self-hating mentality that just is so pervasive among our people. I know a lot of people talk about systemic racism, and I talk a lot about that too. But just in this conversation with you, I was thinking about the systemic binary thinking and how deep that goes. Did you have to work to kind of decondition yourself from that thinking? Do you still do work around that? Do those old thoughts come up? How do you deal with that? Because it sounds like you were really immersed in a lot of lack of self-acceptance on both sides of the racial divide. So like, what do you do if and when those thoughts come up? Thankfully, those thoughts or those temptations are actually gone. Hmm. They're gone, actually. I have absolutely no desire and no intention on ever reverting back to my old ways at all. Because I feel that with all the work that I've done on myself, and me being public and open about my story, doing that has helped me become more confident and more comfortable in my own skin on a racial note. So I feel that that also played a huge role in terms of just breaking this crazy demon of self-hatred. And so in this, me even reaching out to some people and even inspiring them to do the same thing and us talking one-on-one like this, has also helped break and just kill that demon of uh, self-hatred. While some multiracial people do experience self-hatred or feeling hated by others as a result of their race, both of which were once the case for Jordan, others have found beauty and celebration along their journeys of identity exploration. Which just goes to reinforce how diverse people's experiences are. Our hope is that the series will offer a deeper understanding of the realities that multi-ethnic people of a variety of identities and experiences face throughout our lives as we navigate the social constructions of race. And whether or not this show represents your experience, we hope the stories here provide the strength to keep having more conversations. John Blake spoke about the need to have hope in journalism while also striving for something better. And his words echoed our philosophy, although he said it far better than we could. I see so many people who write about race now who are exhausted, who are so cynical. There's this quote from this author, Rebecca Solnit, and I I hope I'm not mispronouncing her name. 
John got it right. Rebecca Solnit is an author of books about climate change, feminism, politics, and more. But she said something I think is so profound. She says, your opponents would like you to believe that there's no reason to hope, that you can't win. And she said, but action without hope is impossible. And I feel like there's so many journalists and people who cover race who feel hopeless now. They feel like things won't change. But I have these experiences with my family. I have all these experiences with the people I met in these interracial communities and churches. And I know that's not true. So what I think what is done, it's infused my work with a sense of optimism and hope that is otherwise missing in most things that we write about race. And when I use the word hope, that's a dangerous word. I'm not talking about this hallmark card type of hope. There are certain writers who say, you know, black people really have no reason to hope, you know, Afro-pessimism. The kind of hope I'm talking about is a type of muscular hope that people need. If, if you're crossing the middle passage and you survive that, you need hope. If you're going through being enslaved and you've got to make it to the next day, you need hope. That's part of our culture. So I feel like that is now a big part of my work. And I think it's, it's helped me become a, a better writer and also a better human being. We hope that the voices, stories, research, and reporting included in this series will offer you perspective, insight, and affirmation, which is something we heard from a lot of guests, including Lisa Funderburg. I really appreciate how you've been able to just jump into this conversation at a level of depth that is not something that always happens in conversations about race, which makes it challenging and makes me want to be careful often with who I'm willing to speak to, because we are a group of people, people who are biracial, particularly black and white. I mean, I have many things in common with other mixed race people, but in America, black and white is a thing. It's a separate John, as we yeah. would say in Philadelphia. <laughs> but we have a very particular experience and it's still true to this day that lots of people don't understand it. I think to a certain extent, we are all well advised to make considered choices about exposing that because race is such a lightning rod. It's such a magnet for projections of largely pain and suffering. I don't know if I can swear, but race is fucked up. Please. Yes. And it is. And I agree. It's, it is fucked up. And the things that happen in the name of race are fucked up. Race is absolutely fucked up, as are the ways in which stories of multiraciality are told, which leads to so much getting left out of these conversations, like with the Time Magazine article, which is only one of many examples of incomplete and inaccurate representations dating back to abolitionist literature of the 1800s, which, by the way, was predominantly written by white men. Thankfully, with the move to share our own stories and the recognition of the need for truth and storytelling, there's not only more representation, but more accurate representation. But unfortunately, those shifts are far too recent, mostly within the last couple of decades. I spoke with Sandra Clark, a longtime journalist and newsroom leader who is now the CEO of the audio archiving project StoryCorps. Sandra shared about how, growing up, she never saw representation or amplification of stories like those of her family, with a Japanese mother and Black father, 
and of how, at least in part, it was that feeling of her family's narratives being left out that inspired her journalistic interest in telling stories that are often silenced or subsumed. Like who's not in this story or whose experience don't we know about? That's the, I think the beauty of StoryCorps is that these are stories that defy stereotype. These are stories that you cannot make them up. I mean, they are lived experiences of people who didn't fit into a box where we were out searching for a story, right? Who had a story to tell and sometimes didn't even know they had a story to tell, truthfully. And so that's kind of been my whole thinking. It's like, who's not here? Whose voice isn't heard? And it's not just about what we are or even who we are, but how our identities have shaped our personalities, as well as many other things about how we view ourselves and the world. Darylise, I love when Azaria asked you about that in your conversation with her. As a biracial individual yourself, I would love to know one lesson you've learned through navigating these spaces. It could be a good lesson of mm. empowerment or something, or what is one takeaway you've learned in growing into the person you are today being biracial? So I think because I never fit into any pre-existing social boxes, I learned that I don't ever have to, and that's not something I ever aspire to. And so I think I've really learned a level of freedom and independence and creativity that all stem out of my biracial identity. So I, I thrive in allowing myself to sort of be who I am and do what I want, which I think is awesome. I will say the downside of that is that belonging comes more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I will say I uh, have gone through phases in my life where I've toyed with being like, you know what? I just don't fit in anywhere. And that's fine. And like telling myself that, but I always come back to this idea that again, that's kind of a joke because at the end of the day, race, as long as it is a system that exists, you do ultimately fall in somewhere. I thought about taking your approach, but <laughs> for your very reason of like struggling with belonging, I think I don't need to belong everywhere, but having some sense of belonging around my race is like so important. But to answer the same question that I asked, I guess unapologetic. That is really the space I've gotten to with my biracial identity is no matter who you are, I'm not apologizing for how I identify and how I choose to live my life. But going back to like the light skin privilege and all that, being unapologetic does not mean you don't own and take accountability mm. for how layers of your identity without you doing anything show up in spaces. Yeah. So I do take accountability uh, when we have those conversations, but I don't apologize for being proud of who I am. I don't apologize for my mother being white. I'm not apologizing for any of it. I've had to get myself to that point. It hasn't been easy, but it's been so necessary because getting back to that belonging piece, I want community to belong to. And I just have to stop worrying about my existence offending other people in those communities <laughs> or out of those communities. And I therefore need to just be okay with completely owning who I am. And I think that's a journey. You're talking about race, gender, sexuality, any of it. Being unapologetic about exactly who you are is something that I'm grateful that I've gotten to mm -hmm. at such a young age because I think I still know people who struggle with that. 
That was Azaria Keys, Assistant Director, Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture at the Fox School of Business at Temple University, and one of my co-producers and hosts for Season 3 of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. The belonging conversation is one that came up a lot. And actually, Malcolm, I remember belonging coming up quite a lot in the first conversation that you and I ever had when I interviewed you for the first episode of the first season of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thanks. But in that conversation, you and I spoke about the feeling of separation and alienation that we both struggled with in various ways throughout our lives, and whether that was rooted in our racial identities. And we also talked about how we felt like our identities have made us more empathetic and more willing to embrace unique paths. Yeah, I really love what you share with Azaria, and I love what she said about being unapologetic. Do you feel like you're able to unapologetically own your identity? To be honest, not entirely. I still feel the need to over-explain the labels I use, and I can't say why exactly in one instance I may choose to lead with black as my identity, and in other instances I may choose the label mixed. But this project is helping me to be more aware, and hopefully I'll become even more unapologetic over time. I do think I'm more able to own my own identity, though, certainly than when I was younger, and I feel less of a need to defer to others. What about you? When it comes to race, yeah, I feel like I'm pretty unapologetic, but there are other areas of my life and my identity where I feel like I check parts of myself at the door or I carry some shame or insecurity. And I think that's because when it comes to my racial identity, I was taught to be vocal about and proud of who I am. And also considering I've made a career out of talking about race, my identity as a biracial person has been a real asset to me, not only personally, but professionally. That said, throughout my life, most people have seen me as black and white. So while they may have used different labels than I would use, how others perceive me has really mirrored how I see myself. So I feel like I've had a lot less to push back against or to defend against than many other biracial people, including my own sister. Also, I've had very few negative racial interactions in my lifetime, and I feel fortunate that that's the case. So I think the fact that I can be unapologetic about my racial identity is in and of itself a privilege. Listening to the truest expression of ourselves as biracial people is essential. I thought you put it really well in your TEDx talk, black or white, refusing to choose and embracing biracial identity. Loving my blackness and whiteness at the same time has helped me to understand that there's something beyond separation, division, hate, and fragmentation. Something beyond the pain of the past. And my conception of an ideal society is one in which people can be all of who they are. Being all of ourselves is the only way to change perceptions of who we really are. Our hope over the course of the next nine episodes is that we can bring forward stories that contribute to more expansive and embracing understandings of race and of humanity. And ideally, for those listening who come from multiracial, multicultural backgrounds, and for those who love us and or are curious to hear more of our stories, this podcast can support that sense of wholeness. I've heard it said that the quality of our questions determines the quality of our lives. So let's question the nameless, faceless, two-dimensional stories of the past and gain a deeper understanding of the complexity of identity by listening to deeply personal narratives. Thank you in advance for joining us in that exploration. Thank you for listening to this episode of the On Being Biracial podcast. Be sure to subscribe now so you hear our next nine episodes, and please like, rate, and review the podcast. 
Since this is our first episode, we'd like to take the time to share full credits here, and we'll do the same in episode 10. Thank you to all of this season's interviewees, Ashanti Martin, Azaria Keys, Barbara Idelis Abadia Rexash, Carter O'Brien Ford, Kat Dyson, Chantel Fitzgerald, Charlotte Gill, David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris, Drew Amond, Evan Fong Jeroff, Hannah Wallace, Ian Burnley, Jewel Love, John Blake, Jordan Davis, Kimberly Ortiz Hartman, Lisa Funderberg, Matt Johnson, Noura Elmarzuki, Rachel Goh, Rachel Lauren, Samante Cruz, Sandra Clark, Sarah Bella Rocha, Sarah Gaither, Sienna McWhirter, Tyla Taylor, Tyler Sloan, W. Kamau Bell, and Zayn Hassanain. And thank you to all the people working behind the scenes for your logistical, financial, and editorial support. You made this season and this project possible. On the production side, thank you to producer, editor, and fact checker Emily Previty and her team at Cavenda Media, and Paul Condell, editor and producer. On the funding and logistical side, thank you to the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, powered by Resolve Philly, with a special thanks to Director of Collaborations, Gene Song. Without your economic support and advertising support, this project would not have been possible. Speaking of advertising, we owe a debt of gratitude to Word Radio for believing in this project and spreading the pun intended word for partnering with us to make this collaboration possible. And a very special shout out to Ashanti Martin, Nick Taliaferro, and Eric Nixon. Thank you to other collaborative members, Philadelphia Neighborhoods, Technically, PGN, and G-Town Radio, who endorsed the project and helped spread the word. To Monica Lynn Graphic Design for creating our logo and branding and to Zach James of Rebel Hill Consulting, who designed and created our website on beingbiracial.com. And thank you to everyone who visited the website and bought us a coffee. We'll put a link to our Buy Us a Coffee page in the show notes in case you'd like to contribute. But by far, the biggest contribution you can make is to listen and share. So thanks again, and until next time.